Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 23rd, a Wednesday, 2022. We have an old joke at Keenon. Again, all our old jokes aren't very funny, but uh, they're relevant, especially for today's show. Uh, when I meet with my team, with my director, with my editorial team at the beginning of the week to determine shows as we're scratching around, um, someone always says, well, let's do the Greeks. You can never fail with the Greeks because they are the perennial subject for serious conversation and literature and books and discussion and indeed dispute. We've done everything on the ancient Greeks from the Oxford professors Armand Dangor on what the ancient Greeks can teach us about innovation to wonderful historians like Paul Cartledge on the forgotten Greek city that shaped modern uh, civilization Thebes. We've done obviously many shows on Athens and on Socrates and on Plato and on Homer. And we're back with the Greeks today because the Greeks don't fail with um, one of uh, America's leading scholars of antiquity, Josiah Ober, goes by the name of Ar, um, not Osh, Ar Josh. He's a professor both in the political science and uh, the classics department at Stanford. And he has a new book out. The Greeks and the Rational, The Discovery of Practical Reason. Uh, Josh is joining us from his home in Palo Alto, just down the peninsula from where I am. Uh, Josh, before we get to the Greeks and the Rational, do you think we overdo the Greeks a bit? Do you think they could do with a bit of a rest? Well, I, as someone who has spent the last sort of 45 years um, studying the Greeks. Um, uh, I'm not ready to give them a rest, um, but I think it's absolutely true that we need to put them in context, um, that we need to think about uh, what's going on in the rest of the world in the pre-modern period. Um, uh, Greek thought, I find it be extraordinarily engaging. It never gets dull for me, but to put them on a pedestal and say they were the only people from pre-modernity who had great ideas is simply foolish. Um, I have uh, colleagues now who are working on um, the tradition, for example, um, uh, in China. Um, really, really interesting. And if I um, knew Chinese, um, uh, I'd probably be spending time uh, studying that. Uh, Josh, you seem to be suggesting that even the Greeks these days, or not even the Greeks, but especially the Greeks and the study of the Greeks uh, has become politicized, that a lot of Conservative critics in particular have been uh, suggesting that we're relativizing the achievements of antiquity of the Greeks and of the Romans and of the Middle Age Europeans. Is there a danger of that, on the other hand, as well, relativizing the Greeks, saying, well, we got the Chinese, we got the Africans, we got the indigenous North Americans, and then we have the Greeks? There was something special about them. That's what attracts you. And then that, of course, is the foundation of this new book, The Greeks and the Rational, isn't it? Yeah, so we know a great deal about the Greeks. Um, they left us a very extensive record of what they did, and moreover, what they thought. And that record has been studied for a very long time, and it's been profoundly influential. I think it's also really worth engaging with, because I think a lot of the ideas that the Greeks developed are, if not 
correct um, in all instances um, uh, are almost always deep uh, and always almost always worth um, spending some real time with. So to say that other cultures um, are also worth spending time with takes nothing away from the Greeks. Um, uh, it, simply means that there are other places and other times um, uh, in which people have thought long and hard about questions of value, um, questions of agency, um, questions of cooperation. Uh, I find the Greeks to be enough for me. I can spend um, uh, the rest of my life uh, studying them and I encourage other people to um, uh, engage deeply as well. But I don't think that means exclusivity. I agree with you. I'm actually rather envious of, of what you do. I. A couple of months ago, I was on the Peloponnese for a conference on democracy, and I spent four or five days going from site to site. And the uh, the wealth of, of of what we're left with is astonishing. Uh, everything from monuments from the original Olympic Games to many pre-classical Greek civilizations. It was no coincidence, or it is no co coincidence, Josh, is it that they left us so much? I mean, it wasn't just luck. It was because uh, they built well because they mastered not just architecture, but war and reason. Is that fair? I, I think that is true. Uh, and it goes back to uh, a distinctive geography. It goes back to a distinctive uh, early history. One of the things that's really dramatic about the Greek world, broadly speaking, uh, is that it's so decentralized. There were, in the time of Plato, Aristotle, something in the range of a thousand Greek city-states, Greek-speaking, Greek, Greek culture, small states, semi-independent or fully independent, and very competitive as well as capable of cooperating with each other. And so we have this very extensive uh, ecology of states. And I think that has something to do with the way in which Greek culture emerged uh, because instead of being directed from some central imperial center, the Greek world had no center. Uh, it was uh, always uh, competitive um, and the thinkers were always in competition with other thinkers, just as inventors, um, uh, entrepreneur, um, uh, everyone in that Greek world recognized that there were others who were doing the kinds of things they were doing. Uh, and I think this competition as well as the developing approaches to cooperation turns out to be at least a lot of what drives this really distinctive um, uh, and uh, enduringly fascinating um, set of cultural achievements. Yeah, you sound a little bit like Aristotle, uh, who wrote about innovation. We did the show with Armand uh, Dango. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Let's get to the book, Josh. Um, it, it, it's borrowed from some lectures you did at UC Berkeley, the Say the Lectures. What inspired you to talk and write about the Greeks and the rational? I've been thinking about the general problem of rationality and its relationship to state capacity, to development of culture for a long time. But it was really only in the last 10 years or so that I began to recognize how deeply the way we think about rationality today, or at least the way some of us think about rationality today, the way economists and some philosophers of agency think about rationality, was prefigured 
by the Greeks. We tend to think of them as having these um, very elaborate ethical schemes, which indeed they do, um, and very deep uh, political philosophy, which indeed they do. But the notion that the Greeks came up with the basics of the theory of choice, uh, the theory of rational agency as the basically science of getting what you go for, um, was, uh, was, was, was not well understood. And I didn't really begin to understand what, um, uh, how deeply the Greeks had explored this set of problems about choice and cooperation until I began to uh, work on contemporary game theory with some of my colleagues here at Stanford. One man who wrote very persuasively and brilliantly about the Greeks was Nietzsche. He wrote uh, philosophy in the tragic age of the Greeks in which he contrasted Homer and the Odyssey with uh, later philosophers, Socrates and Plato. Do you make this distinction when it comes to ra the rational uh, with the Greeks between the Homeric period and the later period, classical Athens, classical Greece? What's different, I think, about the classical period and the Homeric period is not the way people's minds worked. Um, it's not um, even uh, the way they um, uh, cognitively um, imagined um, the possibilities of choice or agency, but rather uh, that in the classical period, there was actually a theorization of uh, action and choice. Uh, so there was a way of thinking very self-consciously about how what you want and what you believe connects to what you can get when you begin to bring in what other people want and what they believe and what they're seeking to get. So although I think that we can find the elements of um, a kind of rational behavior, rational action um, in Homer, uh, it's not theorized. Um, uh, and so you don't really begin to get the um, uh, benefits um, or on the other hand, the costs um, of self-conscious um, rational action um, until we're in the uh, time of the fifth or the fourth century BCE, so Pericles, um, Plato, Aristotle. Homer's world and the world of the Odyssey is dominated by the gods. Sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to distinguish between the gods and man. Perhaps mm -hmm. he meant it that way. Mm -hmm. Is there room for the gods and the rational to coexist? And is your analysis of the Greeks and the rational a choice uh, of reason over gods? So I think by the time that we get to the classical period, the intellectuals I'm concerned with are not in any sense atheists. They imagine a divine order, um, but they have really abstracted the notion of the gods or even the single god in some uh, general sense of the divine order as not interfering very much, um, if at all, in the world of humans, um, but rather as an exemplary um, of a kind of perfection that isn't available to humans, but which humans can hope to strive for. So I think it has shifted in the sense that the gods are not um, imminent in the lives of at least the at least Greek intellectuals by the time we're down into the uh, classical period. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not there. It doesn't mean that um, Plato and Aristotle weren't in their own way um, uh, a profoundly religious people.
You brought up Plato and Aristotle. Um, Plato, I'm sorry, Aristotle, of course, authored How to Innovate. Um, Plato is one of the dominant figures in the Greece of antiquity. Also, Socrates. Who are the heroes of your book when it comes to the Greeks and the rational? Do you see Plato um, and then later Aristotle as pioneers of the rational? Did they invent it? Did they take it from someone else? They certainly don't invent it. Um, we've got the, um, if you want to have a moment of discovery um, of the practical reason as a systematic use of instrumental reasoning, um, uh, that certainly goes back to the middle of the fifth century. We can look at- Perhaps you might define, you, you're using t terms that may be a little bit too technical for some people. What does instrumental reasoning mean, Josh? Yeah, instrumental reasoning is means to end reasoning. So that if you think about how you want to get something or you want something, then instrumental reasoning is the process of the steps, the choices, then the actions you have to take um, in order to end up at what you want, or at least at the best available version of what you want. So it's uh, quite different from what we might call ethical reasoning, uh, which is uh, about what you ought to want. What is the right thing to desire? What is the right thing to pursue based on some objective conception of what is right or good? Instrumental reasoning assumes that we don't have or you don't necessarily have um, a right desire. Simply, it is the process of uh, uh, going for, in the most efficient possible way, uh, what it is that you do desire. Plato, of course, wrote about Socrates. Socrates never wrote about himself. I don't think he was very keen on writing or certainly writing stuff down. I'm not sure if Socrates would be a big fan of instrumental reason, would he, Josh? Um, Socrates believed in ethics over reason, although, of course, I I'm guessing you would suggest that they can coexist. It's not an either or. I think that actually for Socrates, they must coexist. Um, uh, that uh, we see already in a quote that is attributed to Socrates by his student uh, Xenophon, that Socrates had a very clear conception that people are in fact instrumental reasoners. We do each go for what we think is most desirable and we act accordingly. So he had a really firm conception that this just is the way people operate. What he thought was that it is a imperative, if we're to live the best lives we possibly can, that we add to our instrumentalism this ethical dimension. So not just means to end reasoning, but reasoning about ends, um, uh, coming to have the kind of character that desires the right, the best possible end, which means having to come up with some um, uh, firm opinion about what is the best possible end. And that then becomes the Socratic project. But it's all based on the foundation of this understanding of humans as, in fact, rational agents, uh, people who go for what they to, want. To what extent, Josh, do the lives of both Socrates and Plato vindicate your argument about us being rational actors. Of course, Socrates famously chose to die rather than leave the city. 
Plato's life was tragic on, on many le levels. I mean, if he was a rational actor, he could have stayed in Athens and opened a little store or something. I mean, how, how do their lives, in contrast to their thinking, uh, vindicate the notion of, of, of rationality when it comes to us leading our lives? Yeah, I think they each believed that they were completely rational. Um, in but we of, all do. Everybody does, yeah, even Donald I, Trump. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm. I, that's a. That's another. That's a question. Um, uh, uh, but anyway, um, whether to what extent we actually do believe ourselves to be rational, um, uh, you and I might, but I'm not sure that's universal. Uh, but they certainly did think this. Um, uh, uh, and I think they thought that once they had worked out what is the best way, the best end to, to, to aim at, um, seeking truth, um, uh, living in a condition of flourishing, um, uh, at least in a, in, a, in a psychic sense, they um, uh, did, in fact, design their lives accordingly. Um, uh, Socrates uh, certainly didn't think he'd made a mistake by living, um, uh, continuing to live in Athens. Um, uh, he thought that was, in fact, um, uh, uh, the right thing to do. And uh, in the dialogue to Crito, he makes an argument about why it would absolutely be the wrong thing for him to do um, uh, to uh, seek to uh, avoid his punishment. But some people might say, well, the rational thing is to maintain one's life. I've always been, I have to admit, a, a little skeptical. I don't really understand what the word, it, it can mean whatever you want it to mean. So you can, you can be a rational choice theorist and justify Socrates' decision to essentially commit suicide because he wouldn't leave his city because he believed in his city. Uh, so all behavior then can be determined rational, can't it? Well, uh, not necessarily, um, because uh, uh, if, for example, um, your behavior is um, uh, uh, incoherent, um, if you don't have um, at any given moment uh, when you're making a choice, um, uh, an ordered set of priorities so that you prefer A over B and you prefer B over C and you don't prefer C over A. Um, so that's the formal um, uh, definition of rationality. And I think that the um, uh, Plato, Socrates were committed to that idea. Um, uh, Plato certainly thought that many people were not rational in that sense, um, thought that people had simply incoherent um, uh, sets of preferences so that their preferences simply cycled um, uh, in a way that uh, made it impossible for them to pursue any kind of uh, a final good in any kind of consistent way. And therefore, for Plato, um, uh, uh, many people are really um, uh, irrational. They don't have uh, the kind of ordering of preferences um, that even an instrumentally rational person needs to have. I'm not sure if it was Socrates or, or, or Plato who in some ways used the term the sophist or sophistry as a, as a kind of philosophical insult. Uh, were the sophists, I know you write about them in the book, were they um, proponents of, if not the irrational of the unrational was there uh, an alternative tradition in your view within the greek world that challenged that rejected the idea of the rational so i think the sophists were in fact um, arguably really the discoverers of this um, science of instrumental 
rationality. Um, I think that's what worried uh, uh, Plato and uh, uh, before him, uh, perhaps Socrates. Um, Plato and Aristotle talk about sophists a lot. And Plato gives us these wonderful conversations between uh, Socrates and various uh, of the sophists. So I think really the concern there is that the sophists had in fact developed a very powerful approach to instrumentalism, to means to end reasoning, but had failed utterly um, to think hard or even at all about the problem of ends. Um, so that the um, sophists were in the view of Plato anyway, really teaching a very dangerous skill. They were teaching people to be very good at pursuing, indeed maximizing um, things that aren't actually good for them or good for society. For example, simply wealth. Plato, of course, wrote The Republic, which is the foundational political text of, in the Western tradition. In many ways, it's a rejection of democracy, as you suggested, um, Josh. Uh, Plato felt he knew what people wanted, and he came up in the Republic with an idea of a state run by philosophers who would know what we want better, perhaps, than we know ourselves. You've written a lot about democracy. You wrote a book, Demopolis, Democracy Before Liberalism in Theory and Practice. As I said, you're also a professor in political science. And this focus on rational choice is, of course, political. You also wrote Democracy and Knowledge. How does this all fit in to our conception of Greek democracy? Was Are you suggesting that perhaps... Uh, rational choice theory represents the foundations of Greek democracy. That's its major legacy. That's what they've passed on to us. I'm not sure it's, it's ma the major legacy, but it's certainly part of it. Uh, the democracy in the Greek way of thinking about it, in the practice of democracy and the Athenian way of doing it, um, was really very engaged with this whole apparatus of rationality, of instrumental rationality. The institutions that the democratic Greeks devised had to be able to address the problem of systematic, you know, so rationality as pursuing self-interest and sometimes pursuing very narrowly selfish self-interest. So that in one way, um, I think it's right to think about an effective democratic set of institutions as a solution to various cooperation problems that become exacerbated when people become self-conscious about their own you know, means to end reasoning. So that part of what, at least to my mind, is really the, the genius of the Greek democratic invention or set of inventions is indeed this uh, capacity to address um, uh, self-interest, uh, to address problems of incentive compatibility, as um, economists talk about it, uh, and uh, to allow then collective action that was um, aimed at an end um, that was collectively arrived at 
using then beliefs about the world that are at least widely enough shared so that a collective, um, a, a people, um, can actually achieve its collective goals, at least say security and welfare, without just falling into chaos, without just falling into this kind of um, incapacity to arrive um, at a uh, even an end that you systematically pursued in the way that Plato um, said that most people end up doing. Josh, I don't want to speak on behalf of Hannah Arendt. She can, well, she's not around, obviously, to speak for herself. But uh, there is an alternative, I think, Arendtian position on this. Of course, Arendt wrote about the Greeks, very inspired, I think, by Nietzsche. Thinking of the civic tradition, the ideal of the polis, the community. Is that an alternative interpretation of the Greeks? to yours and your focus on the rational and the individual. Are you challenging this communitarian sense of Greek democracy and Greek identity and Greek society? I am only in the sense that people fall into what I see as the fundamental error um, of supposing that um, the ancient Greeks um, uh, were not individuals, um, were not capable of identifying self-interest. Um, we're not worried about problems of cooperation um, or collective action. Um, I think that's a mistake. Um, the thought that the Greeks had some sort of hive mind, that they had, uh, uh, they were, were um, not really individuals. They uh, actually operated um, as sort of a cohesive, organic whole, the way perhaps the bees in a hive might, uh, might act. Act. I think that's that's simply incorrect, um, and it's disproved by um, uh, any careful, uh, careful uh, assessment of or careful reading of, uh, of Greek literature. Um, now, I don't think Arendt thought that uh, quite, but um, some people, perhaps following on from Arendt, um, uh, idealize the polis a place um, that has this kind of strong form of communitarian and uh, communitarianism such that the individual simply disappears. I read Arendt as, the, uh, as saying that actually the uh, polis was the place where the individual could appear into public as an individual um, and could uh, uh, exemplify um, uh, what is important about an individual as an agent, as a speaker. Um, now that's part of a community. It's being within a community. It's only possible to exemplify that within some kind of community, but it doesn't uh, take this strange step of imagining pre-modern people as uh, somehow um, uh, uh, not like us um, in terms of um, our fundamental psychology. Just when we talk about the Greeks, we often, of course, implicitly or otherwise talk about the Romans and classical civilization. A lot of these schools and traditions from the Socratic and Platonic traditions to Epicureanism and cynicism and so on and so on were, part, were passed on from the Greeks to the Romans. What's your narrative in terms of the rational? Did the Greeks pass this idea on to the Romans and did in sort of conventional histor historiographical terms, did the rational get lost in the Middle Ages? I don't know if it ever really got completely lost. Um, I think that the kind of systematic way of thinking about um, the way that individual agents make choices, pursue their ends, um, uh, is 
quite evident in the, the post-Socratic traditions, as you say, in Epicureanism, um, in Stoicism. Uh, and Stoicism uh, is particularly fashionable these days, although I sometimes wonder whether it's classical Stoicism or, or our, our contemporary ideal of what it could or should mean. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. There's a kind of uh, uh, people used to talk about vulgar Marxism, and I think there's a kind of vulgar Stoicism that, uh, uh, in some ways, makes the uh, uh, quite difficult ideas of Stoicism uh, much more accessible than perhaps um, uh, uh, the original the designers meant it to be. But that's that's another question. Uh, but I think that you really do see in the um, uh, in the Roman tradition, you know, once again, try to um, ways that that thinkers Cicero, for example, um, tries to solve problems of his own period in the late Republican period in ways that are entirely consistent with this original um, Greek uh, concern with um, the problems of rationality. Not only you know what how to make good choices, but 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 how that makes difficulties um, uh, for uh, our society. So you read. Cicero's letters, and he's thinking, you know, very much like a game theorist, um, trying to figure out the moves that Caesar is going to be making, um, uh, or the various other um, uh, major figures of his time, and trying to figure out then, well, if they're going to move this way, then working back on what we now call the game tree, you know, what's the best move that I can make in order to block them from doing whatever you know, thing that he thinks they're trying to accomplish that he doesn't want them to accomplish. What about Augustine? He is often represented as a break between the, the classical world and the Christian world of the Middle Ages. It seems to me as if Augustine's life, his work, his thinking was bound up in conquering the rational, in challenging the rational. Was there room for the rational in Augustinian or in Aquinas or in the Christianity of the Middle Ages? Yeah, I, I think there, there certainly is. Um, uh, but the uh, question of divine providence really makes a big difficulty, um, at least for a thoroughgoing conception of, of practical reason um, uh, as engaged with other agents um, uh, whose minds are to some extent, you know, at least hypothetically knowable to ourselves and Therefore, the games that we play are with other you know, agents who are at least you know, potentially could be understood as rational, having the same psychology we have. Once you begin, um, uh, when you bring divine providence into it, um, it really does change things. And then the question of um, uh, the, to what extent do we have agency? To what extent um, uh, is the world predetermined becomes uh, a really deep issue. Um, and that's uh, what uh, Christian philosophers, um, Christian uh, uh, thinkers have uh, struggled with really uh, ever since. Josh, we, talk, we, we, we began this conversation comparing Greece with other civilizations. What about the increasingly fashionable idea that much of antiquity was digested by Islamic thinkers, did they take the rational and then re-export it back into late medieval, early modern Europe? Yeah, I, I uh, wish I were enough of a scholar of um, Islam to give you a good answer to that. Um, my basic sense is that a lot of what the um, Islamic tradition took from the 
classical period, uh, was um, uh, not instrumental reasoning, indeed not even the ethical reasoning, um, but was scientific reasoning, um, that the Islamic tradition was very interested in the parts of Aristotle especially um, that dealt with uh, logic, um, dealt with uh, cosmology, um, uh, dealt with, you know, basically what we would call um, uh, questions of natural science. Uh, and so to, as far as I know, um, there isn't a direct line um, uh, from the work that I'm currently interested in, um, the Greeks and the rational, um, and the Islamic tradition. But I'd be perfectly prepared uh, for someone who knows the Islamic tradition much better than I do to say, nope, you're making a mistake. Um, that's exactly how it goes. We'll have to get someone who, who is more familiar with that tradition on the show. Finally, um, Josh, we did a show earlier today with Robert Draper, a contemporary American journalist, uh, someone who's covered the Republican Party for the last couple of years, written a book called Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind about a lot of extremely irrational, unreasonable figures within the party in the post-Trump or age where people seem even more irrational or unreasonable than Trump. What can your book, and I don't want to turn this into just another opportunity to bash Donald Trump because that's boring, but what can your book, The Greeks and the Rational, The Discovery of Practical Reason, teach us in our age of fake news, where nobody believes anything anybody else says, when there are these populist attacks on science, on reason, and everyone suggests that there is no such thing as reason. It always reflects our own particular interests. Uh, Socrates and Plato would, of course, been very familiar with this kind of discussion. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly so. Um, and I think the um, uh, danger really is uh, that we give up on, uh, on reason or we claim that you know, democracy is incapable um, of really addressing the kind of irrational, the unreasonable, the uh, uh, people who believe things that are just blatantly false, um, uh, people who may um, believe things they know to be um, uh, blatantly false, but choose to act on those falsehoods, uh, as opposed to, you know, acting in terms of on, on, on beliefs that have at least some plausibility. Uh, so I think that at least uh, the way I think about it is that we need to recognize um, how difficult cooperation really is. Um, and dif you know, cooperation, large-scale social cooperation, the kind of cooperation on which democracy certainly depends, um, is more difficult um, in the face of people who are very self-consciously transactional um, or transactional all the way down. So I would say that the you know, problem with um, uh, uh, Donald Trump is not that he's um, wildly irrational, um, uh, is that uh, he's a kind of uh, uh, utterly transactional, rational actor um, uh, uh, who is um, uh, capable of understanding um, the value of um, uh, inciting irrationality in others um, and achieving his own ends when people, uh, other people aren't able to um, organize, um, as it were, rationally their, their means to ends um, uh, form of reasoning. So uh, I think it's just the, the at, a, at a time in which there does seem to be a sense that, well, look, um, the uh, rationality is, um, is not uh, adequate to the um, problems of our age. Uh, I think we have to say it, it must be. Um, uh, it's what we've got. Uh, 
Uh, and there are solutions. There are, the Athenians came up with um, uh, solutions that were institutional. Um, they developed norms um, that uh, committed uh, uh, citizens to working together. Um, we, ca we, ca we can do this, um, but it's, it's really very, very difficult um, to think that democracy is easy, um, that cooperation is simply natural, um, uh, that anybody who isn't cooperating is just being a, a wicked person rather than a very um, skillful pursuer of their own narrow interests, um, is to really become, uh, uh, to, to disarm ourselves um, in the face of the challenges that we face today.